This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. Thank you to our newest sponsor, Brewing with Enzymes by Novazymes. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Dare to brew different with new and exciting hop varieties from Hopsteiner's industry-leading breeding program. Varieties like Sultana, Lotus, Bravo, Altus, and Contessa are now available in lupulin pellet form, packing more flavor and aroma per pellet. Discover more at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day to day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. We just released Avalon, which is a two-row winter. We should have seed available to farmers to plant uh, in the, this fall, fall 22. In terms of sustainability, I think there's some really unique opportunities uh, to brewers. You know, you start talking about lower carbon footprinting and seeing regenerative agriculture and all these different things, a real advantage to grow the markets pretty quickly. This week on the show, one of my favorite topics, winter barley. You'll hear about the exciting new two-row winter variety recently released by Virginia Tech, the advantages winter barley brings to growers, malsters, and brewers, the challenges that lie ahead, and how you can get involved. Hi, yeah, this is Ashley McFarlane, and I am the Vice President and Technical Director for the American Malting Barley Association, and I'm located in Duluth, Minnesota. Yeah, Nicholas San Antonio, I'm the small grains breeder of Virginia Tech. Yeah, my name is Trey Hill. Uh, I'm a farmer in Rock Hall, Maryland, and we're currently growing two-row barley uh, for malting, as well as wheat, uh, corn, and soybeans. Hi, my name is Zach Gaines. I'm the Director of Raw Materials and Logistics for Proximity Malt, and I'm located in northern Colorado in Fort Collins. Winter barley isn't some newfangled innovation. Talk about where it came from. Yeah, so I mean, we've been, you know, we've been growing winter barley in Virginia and I mean, in a lot of the East, uh, you know, up up towards, you know, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, well, maybe not Philadelphia, but into, into Pennsylvania, uh, probably New York used to grow a lot more. Um, New York actually used to be a production center for malt barley a hundred years ago, surprisingly. Um, and that was all winter types. But, you know, we've been, we, my program here has been here since, uh, for about a hundred years, we have been growing um, inbred barley types, right? So 
types that breed true since probably, you know, the 20s or the 30s. And most of that was for feed production. Um, winter barley makes a nice rotational crop here, especially now. It's, it's largely uh, involved with the corn and soybean rotation. Um, actually, it does better than wheat in there because you can get your soybeans on a little earlier. But, but you know, we've had feed types here for 100 years easily, and, and, but everybody stopped growing malting types in the East Coast because, uh, one, the, the, the malt types in, in, in the West did better because there was less disease pressure uh, from, of the barley itself. But also, um, the, the spring types tended to have a little bit better malt quality. So I think that largely it just kind of got phased out over time and, and to the point where there's effectively almost zero malt grown until, you know, just this past decade or so. Is anybody equipped to speak about the historical growing of winter barley in Bavaria? Uh, when, when I when I formerly worked with Lima Green, they had a part a strategic partnership with a company called Broin, and Broin breeds uh, barley and wheat varieties in Germany, and and it's basically an equal part spring and winters. So uh, Violetta is a variety that we brought over, and honestly, just we asked them, do you feel like there's something that might work in the U.S. market? You know, specifically with malting quality. And and that's what came over. But I would say that, you know, Violetta in terms of of its timeline from when it was released, uh, and it was released for the Bavarian region of Germany, it's you know, it's getting to be almost twelve or fifteen years old. So at this point, I would say that some of the things that is coming out of Nicholas's program would likely be a big step forward in terms of genetic gain. If if we go back even further in time in Europe, um, correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding is that traditionally, um, spring malting barley was produced in regions with moderate temperatures and adequate rainfall um, throughout the entire growing season. Whereas winter barley, uh, winter malting barley was mostly grown in the milder, arid, and semi-arid parts of Europe. Um, is does that sound about right? Is that accurate? Does it, can anybody speak on that? That sounds about right to me, because uh, you you need if it's too warm, they don't do a good job setting seed. So you have to have cooler summers to grow, uh, or you know, cooler springs and summers to grow to grow the the spring types. Tell us about the sustainability of winter barley. I, I would say the the biggest issue with sustainability here is is that you don't have to ship things long distances, right? So right now, if you're a craft uh, brewer in, say, Massachusetts, you're having to buy malt that's either coming all the way from Germany or it's coming from Idaho, right? Or, or somewhere in the, you know, that upper Midwest. So regardless, you're using a lot of, of resources to truck, literally truck or ship that stuff here, um, you know, to where, to where you're using it. And I, I think that you know, I think that there's been a big push to augment local food and and agricultural systems so that we don't have to do this crazy thing of trucking things everywhere. I mean, you know, it's the, the example of, you know, I, I lived in upstate New York for some time and you'd go into the grocery store and you'd buy apples that were from Washington. But New York is a huge apple producing state. There's almost no excuse for that, you know. You sh if you live in Washington, you should you should eat Washington apples, and if you live in New York, you should eat New York apples. 
Yeah, and I think that too, the um, perspective on the shipping is an interesting one. And it's really valid because um, as we have a more of a craft malt industry come to life, um, it's making that more accessible and possible for our brewers in the regions where barley has not traditionally been grown. Um, But I think other areas of sustainability of note too are just the economic sustainability for farmers and how important it is to have options. And um, when I was still at Michigan State University, used to be a part of the barley research program there, we started to dabble in uh, winter barley just because we wanted to give farmers options. And spring barley was not always a good one for them, but we wanted to get more barley back in the state. And so uh, when we were introducing winter barley, we were looking at opportunities for double cropping and whether or not we could get some soybeans punched in after that. And I know that's clearly an option in you know, some of the East Coast or Southern states, but we didn't know if it was attainable in Michigan, and we're definitely finding it is. Um, and granted, we, you know, situation conditions have to be right. But, you know, if farmers can get that winter crop in and then get that off in time to get some soybeans in, not only are they being more economically sustainable for their operation, but they have a winter cover on now through the the winter months. And so then thinking about environmental sustainability, that's going to impact erosion, water quality. And so having that continuous cover through the winter is just another kind of nod to why winter barley is such a great crop um, to be producing. Um, and so I, and, and, you know, further kind of down the line, looking at research also that Michigan State continues to do is if you throw livestock in the, in that scenario and a farm that's able to do that double crop situation and have livestock, um, it just adds to the sustainability of that operation because then you're, also building out your risk management strategy, right? So if you have some barley that doesn't necessarily meet malting quality, then it can get fed to that livestock. Or maybe you double crop instead of with some soybeans, you put out some forage, um, some forage crops and get a crop in there. And again, you know, looking at uh, greater opportunities for livestock feed. So, you know, I think the sustainability issue is a huge one. And I think that's why barley in general is a good answer for a lot of things and winter barley um, more so maybe. But uh, you got to look at all elements of sustainability. And the biggest part is we got to have farmers that want to grow it um, and they're going to keep growing it. And so that's why looking at this kind of from a broader perspective is so important. So, so can I ask Trey, how did you, how long have you been growing winter barleys? I mean, did you, did you produce any feed barleys before you got into malt and, and what were, what were the perceived, what were the perceived benefits to you? I mean, why, why did you, why did you make that transition? Well, we've never really had a local maltster. Um, you know, we recently have had proximity move in, so there's now a market for us. So usually it comes down to markets for what we grow. So we've always grown winter wheat. Um, we cover crop every acre. And I really like the barley because I think there's, in terms of sustainability, I think there's some really unique opportunities uh, to brewers because with, with the scalability of farms, we don't have to be super huge in order to brand a product. Um, so I would love for the brewers to be able to come to my farm and see their barley be grown, or maybe it's four or five farmers that are growing it and actually make a day and figure out who's growing what you guys are brewing. Uh, for example, we're all no-till, uh, we cover crop, we're considered regenerative depending on your definition. And I think that there's some real opportunities um, to kind of learn from one another. You know, I can learn what do you guys need is, 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 you know, hopefully one, is it a good product? If we're no-till and we're regenerative, it should have higher 
uh, densities of nutrients um, just based on, on research. But I think that there's a lot of opportunities for the lack of travel, the lowered carbon footprint, not only the lowered carbon footprint of the traveling, but also the, the fact that a lot of your mid-Atlantic growers are no-till, they are cover cropping, they are regenerative, they're doing all these things. We have low uh, nitrogen per bushel ratios due to the fact that we use a lot of organic manures and different things. Um, so that, that's where my appeal is. Like I can do all this stuff and grow corn and it goes to feed chickens and no one cares, right? They don't, they don't care where the corn comes from to feed chickens and, you know, a big system. But I'd rather grow for a specific person and grow exactly what they want. And then hopefully enjoy a beer where I grew the barley is my goal in life right now. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to that the sustainability piece, though, we, we did an episode a, a while back with uh, Nigel Davis at Muntins, and we talked a lot about carbon footprint and cal- the, the, you know calculating carbon footprint and whatnot. And uh, he talked a lot about just the impact of, the, of cover crops and how that can you know greatly reduce uh, the carbon footprint. I, I'm wondering if there isn't a significant advantage just from the standpoint of having that plant above the soil for a longer period of time versus spring barley, like, um, you know, there might be a significant um, difference in carbon sequestration just from, you know, just from that standpoint alone. Does anybody want to comment on that or agree or disagree with that statement? Well, yeah, I mean, I've sold carbon credits um, through a company called Nori and we model everything. So if we can get two crops in the field or the longer the cover crop, or in this case, the winter barley grows, the more you get sequestered into the soil. Mm-hmm. And as long as, in, as long as you don't till the soil, it has to maintain, it has to stay no till. But yeah, we're starting to carbon footprint our fields and it's really not that um, difficult to do. And like the initial scope of how much carbon is being sequestered into the soil, we haven't done a full, what they call scope three, which would be an analysis of the entire operation. Cause that's still really complicated in terms of fuel of the trucks and propane and whatnot. Um, we're hoping to get there someday. You got to listen to the episode with Nigel. <laughs> but, but yeah, but, but, but with models, I mean, we can certainly, I mean, right now I think it's, it's very reasonable uh, for folks to ask what the carbon footprint is of what they're eating or drinking. Um, yeah. And, and more people are going to do that, you know, as time goes on. So, so Trey though, I mean, w- if you didn't put in barley though, wouldn't you have just put in wheat in that similar, you know what I mean? In a similar case? Yes. That's yes. It, for me, it would be the, the same or it would be a cover crop, you know, like a mixed species mix. Um, right. yeah, but the, the carbon sequestration I think would still be, um, to the point that it, it would be greater than a, a single crop of spring barley would be my hypothesis that that would, yeah, we're doing, sure. doing a winter crop with a summer crop coupled with it would probably sequester more than a, you know, than a single crop of barley in the spring. I guess, I guess my question is that as you bring in, you know, as you get more growers that are interested in trying to do winter barley for either, for either malt purposes or feed purposes, are they small grain farmers who would have just put wheat in anyway, or are these, you know, are we targeting people who maybe would actually leave that fallow? I, my gut says that it would be mostly small grain farmers who are saying, oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do barley this year instead of wheat. Well, for me, it increases my acres of small grain. We cap out at like 2000 acres of wheat just due to harvestability and timing in the summertime. If we grow the barley, we're getting increased equipment utilization, increased labor utilization because it comes off. The violetta is fairly close to wheat, but it's about a week to 10 days ahead of wheat. So it essentially starts our small grain harvest around June 10th. 
And then we harvest the barley from June 10th to June 20th, get the beans in, get the chicken litter spread or the compost put on. Then we start on wheat on the 20th and run the, the wheat from the 20th to the 30th. So it's allowing our, our most profitable crop is the small grain with double crop beans. Right. So it's, it's a nice fit, but we just can't do that many acres just because everything has to be timed perfectly. When the violet is fit, you better cut it that day. When the wheat yes. is fit, you better cut it that way because you get huge quality degradation the next day or one rain, you know, just really changes that profile of the crop, whether it's wheat or barley. I mean, the, the millers are just as picky as the, as the, well, maybe not as picky as the broom as, as the breweries, but um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it, so for me personally, it adds that money, more acres of small grains just to, yeah. for, for better, better utilization and working every day. Yeah. I mean, one of the, I think one of the real difficulties with, with, you know, at um, adoption of growing malt is that the farmers have to understand, you know, someone who's trying it the first time has to understand that the, that the nutrient requirements are different. So you're using less nitrogen, which is also a bit of a sustainability, uh, you know, (laughs) point there, but, but more importantly, they have to understand that because it's malt, it, it has the propensity to sprout a lot easier. So any rainfall event that happens after it's matured is going to drastically reduce the quality of that. So, you know, I mean, we recommend that, that anyone that's growing this, that needs to be their top priority to pull off. And if, if it means that you got to pull it off and dry it down somewhere, it's probably better than letting it get rained on. Cool. Um, does anybody want to comment on um, in regards to sustainability um, water usage? Because you know, I think back to just a simple example of okay, you know, um, every spring around here, I'm in Virginia as well. You see, you know, all the, the all the stores are selling tons of grass seed, and everybody's putting it down. And after years and years of of planting grass seed, you know, and struggling to keep it alive um, in the spring, I finally learned that, well, if I put this stuff down in the fall and it overwinters that um, I don't have to waste, you know, thousands of gallons of water trying to keep it alive when it gets hot the following season. Um, And I got to think that the same is true here, that the, the water demand being spread out over this longer period of time um, for a winter barley versus a spring barley has got to be a huge advantage from a sustainability standpoint. I think it is, John. And I would say that that's, that's part of the reason why, you know, winter barley, you're seeing winter barley begin to move West. Um, So I would say that that's, I mean, that's a key advantage, but I think one thing, one thing you need to understand about farmers is that any farmer given the choice to grow a winter small grain versus a spring small grain, 100% of them would grow winters. Yes. They would grow winter barley. They would grow winter wheat, uh, you know, just with the advantages in yield, uh, the advantages in, in fertilizer savings. Like you said, you know, the ability that the fact that you can get it up, get it established, you know, take advantage of winter moisture. Um, and then in the spring, you have a plant that's already, you know, a long ways down the development, uh, you know, in terms of having an established stand that you're starting with rather than a germinated seed. But the water, you know, the water issue is is critical. I think this is a year where you really saw that. And I think that's kind of, this was kind of a stark contrast in the general barley growing areas compared to to years where there is enough water or there's not quite so much heat. I would just say that you know, of the, of the many advantages of winter malting barley, both out on the coast and as it moves west, you know, water savings is, at least in my opinion, would be at the top. Why does winter barley make better malt? What's in it for the brewer? 
I, you know, I don't know if you would could necessarily say it makes better or worse malt. I think at this, you know, at this point in time, and again, this is just my perspective. I would think you would want to, you would hope to achieve, you know, the same levels of extract and, uh, you know, and similar parameters in terms of, you know, diastatic power and alpha amylase per a given percentage of protein with a winter variety that you would with a spring. I would say right now that, you know, the concept or the case that needs to be proven is that winter barley is every bit as good as spring if produced yeah, on the, farm the right way. Yeah, I think that the big, you know, the big challenge there is that winter, winter types um, because they have the longer growing season they they end up you know just producing a lot more photosynthate they're more likely to have higher protein levels um, so when they're managed well you can get just as high a quality uh, malt I think as you would get out of a spring I think it's just a little easier to mismanage them and then have something that's got more protein than you really want but you know the flip side of that is that is that I think that what we're starting to see, is that there really hasn't been a lot of genetic improvement of winter barleys for the North American, you know, climates. And so I'm hoping, you know, what we're really hoping is as, as a breeder, you know, breeding program is that we can actually get winter barleys that are, you know, if, if they're managed correctly, that perform as well or better than, than spring types. And I really think that if there is any genetic difference between the two, it's, it's, it's largely, uh, a legacy issue that we're working to solve right now. And and I think that we, you know, we've, we have some good success stories there. Yeah. That, that you know, when I presented this work in 2009 um, on, I think my, my presentation at the brewing summit was titled, should the breeding of winter barley be intensified? And that was one of the arguments, arguments I made. It's just like, well, yeah, um, it's impossible for it to ever be fully optimized if if nobody's breeding for it and it's not you know it's not making the same headway that um doesn't have the same resources going into it that spring does i want to dive deeper into protein and enzymes i've read that protein in winter barley types is easier to control as you avoid some of the summer heat stress that typically occurs and that also makes kernels thinner so let's dig into all that and sort of unpack that a little bit and, and talk uh, i don't know if zach's the best person or whatever but let's let's get into that lower protein argument because i think that really is uh, and, and maybe this is a good topic for Ashley because we we look at like sort of AMBA and like how they have, you know, uh, I forget what year it was that AMBA added, added its like, you know, separate different requirement list for craft brewers versus large brewers. But I mean, this is a big deal for craft brewers to get um, lower protein malt that's less hot, that has, you know, less of an enzymatic package that, that you don't have to, you know, dilute with, with adjunct. So, um Talk about that. Yeah. So I would say there's two things, right? So you've got natural dormancy that exists in winter types. So they don't want to sprout immediately. So the spring types want to sprout immediately once they're matured. Uh, that's 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 how they work. Whereas the 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 winter types need to chill out for a little while, uh, so that they so that they are ready to do the thing when it comes when it you know comes that fall right so they do have more dormancy than the spring types now that's that can both be a blessing and a curse right because if you're too dormant you don't malt well right but but at the same time you know because you know we we have some some varieties it'll take you know 7 or 8 days uh before they're really you know before they finally 
germinate and do the thing. And and they've, you know, there are some, most monsters don't really have the capacity to deal with that, right? So they, they have kind of fixed timelines and, you know, if they have to wait three more days, that's probably not going to work for them because it slows them down. It reduces their production. So, so there's, there's that piece of it. There's the dormancy side of it. But if it all sprouted in the field, then they're in right. an even worse oh, yeah. position, you know, right. worse position, right? Yeah. But then, but then on the other side of it, so the protein part of it is absolutely the winters would produce more protein if they're managed like a feed barley. That's why the winter feed barleys are are of interest, is because they have high protein. Um, but but they, I think the thing is, is that the winters can be managed easier than the springs can right because the spring is a much shorter amount of time and so you know if you put on a little you know if they end up with too much nitrogen and then they get a little too much heat uh you know it, it you can have this problem with them becoming too you know if like you say hot right so too high a protein whereas the the winters i think are a little easier to manage the trick is is teaching people how to manage malt as opposed to a feed barley in, in for the winter types. And that, that has been a real challenge with adoption here in Virginia. Well, and I think you're getting to that point too with the, the fertility management is that you're able to spread that out a little bit. And I think that's right. a, an important point to make that, you know, we all know, but I think to be said is that we can manage that crop a bit more intimately spread out that fertility. Whereas with a spring crop, you're often dumping it on um, at once. (laughs) And so you can really start playing what the weather is and what those crop needs are much better in that winter crop. And I will just say from my experience, and I know researchers that we're working with, that that protein management is better in the winter crop. And I think that's region specific too. And clearly the weather is going to have a big impact on that. Um, But it's not even just, you know, fertility and, and resulting protein. But I think when you're looking at a winter crop, it's even, uh, again, region dependent, but you're able to time uh, like your fungicide and your pesticide applications and also be able to maybe even uh, get away from hitting some of those disease or pest periods, um, being able to harvest earlier. So I think that there's a lot of advantages there to that winter crop. But, you know, Nicholas hit it on the head is one thing that we ran into in Michigan, and sorry, I'm just harking back to my experiences there, is people are like, oh, I'll throw some barley in, or, or it just seemed like a sexy idea, so let's grow some barley because then I can drink it down at my brewery. But the problem was, is people weren't willing to manage that barley, and you really have to see, whether it be spring or winter barley, um, that it is a, a, a crop that takes management. It's not necessarily a high-input crop, but it is a crop you have to manage and you have to, you have to baby along a little bit to meet that malting spec. And I think when you look at kind of the ebb and flow of barley interest and people really rushing on five to eight years ago wanting to grow barley for the craft beer industry specifically, it seems, you know, was where the craze was. And then people had failure and it's because they weren't managing the crop as it needed to be managed. And so it's really important for research and then our cooperative extension programs throughout the country to be talking to farmers about how you manage for that malt quality and specifically how you're delivering, you know, a live product and how important that is then for the malting industry and and then therefore the brewing industry. But, um, you know, you have to look at this crop much differently than you might others. Uh, So that's just an important thing, I think, that we need to keep in mind. I want to go back to something Nicholas said, just with regard to to winter malting barley having you know lower protein levels, you know lower enzymatic uh, potential, and and potentially higher extract. I would say that 
the the amount of time that's been spent breeding winter barley versus spring barley, or at least targeted for this purpose, it, there's a huge difference. I mean, if you think about you know, the fact that Coors, uh, Anheuser-Busch, you know, the ARS, uh, multiple other university breeding programs. I mean, they have a hundred years of breeding into spring barley in a specific region of the United States. And then the new kid on the block is, is winter barley. And really the newest kid on the block is winter malting barley. So if you think about varieties that are currently in the marketplace right now that would be used in, you know, traditional domestic style beer, you know, the Bud Lights, Coors Lights of the Worlds, those are going to have higher protein, higher enzymatic uh, contributions in the mash. And that's because they were bred specifically. I mean, one thing that, that breeders are amazing at is going a direction very quickly. And that was the direction for a long time. When you see some of the craft uh, type barleys that are being brought over, a lot of those were bred by breeders in England and their target was not, you know, high enzymatic potential, uh, you know, adjunct style beers. They were shooting for the Scotch whiskey market, which requires if they're all malt, you know, very small, very low amounts of protein, very high in extract, lower enzymatic potential. So I would say that, you know, what getting back to the point of, you know, what's really needed is further development specifically in winter malting barley with a target for craft beer. And, and I, I think it's just a matter of time. Ashley, can you talk about that that target for craft beer? Yeah, and I it's fascinating actually because just yesterday I hosted a meeting with all of the barley breeders in the United States um, that are working directly with the AMBA's quality evaluation program. So that's essentially our variety pipeline where breeders uh, submit lines that they're excited about and then we run it through both pilot and plant scale testing. And so we're trying to just separate out the men from the boys <laughs> and try to figure out, you know, which varieties do we want to invest in moving forward. And it was interesting because as we just kind of did a round table, everyone introduced themselves, what are you excited about? What are you working on? Literally every program, I think with the exception of North Dakota, is diving into winter barley. And um, I mean, we knew that was happening to some degree, but I just thought it was really interesting in places like Montana, thinking about, you know, can we get something winter hardy enough that we can grow up here because we see opportunities for our farmers and we see opportunities for the market. And so I think that it's um, really important to continue those investments. And I will say that, you know, a big part of AMBA's work is investing nearly half of our member dues into research. And over half of our research projects this year did have some element of winter work, whether it be looking at hardiness, uh, malt quality, or just, you know, purely just variety introduction. Um, but it's it's really exciting to see because I, um, you know, that spring barley really dominated and uh, especially the malting market. But now if we can start improving those lines in the winter malting barley, I think it's going to be a different story. And even as possibly as soon as five years, if we can get some varieties out there um, that can be real game changers. Coming up. 
And that could be as simple as a brewer saying, yes, we would like to source uh, this malt. Um, was your, can you tell me, was your malt actually, was the barley produced from certified seed? I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. This episode brought to you by BSG and RAR Malting Company, the home of fossil-free malt. RAR's headquarters in Shakopee, Minnesota is powered by renewable electricity. Malt houses and kilns are fed by an electrostatic boiler fueled by agricultural byproducts, much of which is waste from the malting process. By eliminating the use of natural gas, RAR Malting Company reduces CO2 emissions by 260,000 tons per year, while filling 25% of the U.S. brewing industry's malt needs. Put the power of raw malt in your beer at go.bsgcraft.com slash contact us. Are you looking to improve yield, quality, and sustainability in your cellar? Alpha Laval has over 60 years of brewing experience offering centrifuges, dealkalization systems, yeast plants, and complete cold block cellar projects designed for the most gentle and efficient treatment of your beer, cider, hard seltzer, or other beverages. Let the leaders in brewing innovation help you meet your greatest production and sustainability goals. Visit alphalaval.us slash MBAA to learn more. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. The Master Brewers Brewery Packaging Technology course starts February 11th. District Carolinas holds a winter social February 12th at Cabarrus Brewing in Concord, North Carolina. District Ontario is doing a webinar February 24th on the topic of safety hazards in the brewery. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets at Surly's Shide Hall February 24th. District Pittsburgh meets February 25th at Mindful Brewing Company. District Great Plains meets February 26th at Crane Brewing in Raytown, Missouri. The 2022 Brewing Summit, that's the combined meeting with Master Brewers and ASBC, is August 14th through the 16th in Rhode Island. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Back to the show. Talk.
talking about this this focus that was done on spring and then and then made this you know very recently this transition to interest in winter anheuser-busch approached our program like back in like the late 90s early aughts something like that and they said hey you know we're interested in kind of evaluating whether or not this is a possibility like can we grow winter types and can we do it in the east and so we kind of played around with with some crosses to uh, some some European materials with some of our uh, feed barleys and Wincy, M- Mr. Wincy Brooks, the the barley breeder here at Virginia Tech, he uh, you know had a cross with a with a with a feed and a and a malt from Europe, and you know it kind of they 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 looked at some things, but then they said, well, this doesn't really look like it's going to go anywhere. But we we got an awesome feed barley out of it called Thoroughbred, that was released. You know, it does it does really well in the east. Um, and what happened was then you know we we had interest in um, Copper Fox actually in in Sperryville, you know, came to us and said, look, we want to to use malt that's local we have people that are interested in that do you have anything that might you know have acceptable quality um and they were distilling with it and we said oh let's look at this and and it turned out that you know some of those early crosses that were made between the feed and the um and those malt types from europe actually had reasonable malt quality and so thoroughbred got recommended by amba eventually um because it was one of the few winter types that actually had acceptable uh, you know, characteristics. And, and that led in turn to us, you know, kind of making that transition to saying, well, hey, you know, in, at about 2010, can we actually do this, right? Can we start a malt barley, you know, winter malt barley breeding program here in the East? And and I think that we've been largely successful at doing that. In fact, you know, we, we just had uh, a, a release of Avalon, which came out and that's, that has thoroughbred as one of its parents. So you're kind of seeing this adaptation of taking these feed types that were very well adapted to the, the moisture and the temperatures that you get in the East and, and moving, you know, malt quality characteristics from, from, from Europe into them. Nicholas, just reading between the lines here, did do you think Anheuser Busch uh, were they primarily concerned with sort of de-risking the 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 malt barley supply in the U.S. and saying like, hey, look, let's 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 diversify here and get move some of these growing regions around so that we don't get hosed one year when when it gets wiped out somewhere? I mean, that's probably part of it. I think the other thing is transportation costs, right? So you know, right. I mean, St. Louis is not in North Dakota or Idaho. <laughs> Uh, and so, um, right. So they, you know, and they produce a very uniform product. I mean, they deserve a lot of credit for producing an incredibly uniform product from an agricultural commodity that is all but uniform. Right. And so I think that, I think that their interest was to have something that was a little closer, have something to kind of, um, be able to balance those, those ebbs and flows. And yeah, I I think that you're largely correct. I think if you look historically as to why we went to spring wheat in the West as opposed to growing winter, or I mean, I'm sorry, spring barley in the West as opposed to winter barley in the East, humidity is the enemy of all, right? It's, it's what causes sprouting. It's what causes all these things. But now farming has changed so much that I think the opportunities are so much different. Our planters are better. Our technology is better. Uh, the things we spray to offset these things are much better. We get a much more consistent product 
in the field, you know, all the barley heads out the same time, it matures the same time, and we can harvest it very quickly. And I think those things didn't exist 30 or 40 years ago. So if you had barley that was uneven and you waited until the greenest plant finally got dried down, you probably had a significant portion of the field that had already sprouted, especially in in the presence of high humidity. I know that this is true with wheat. Um, so with wheat, we're able to grow a much higher quality product than we ever used to. And we're starting to bring in some hard red winter or some hard red wheat here as opposed to soft red winter. Um, because currently, like for bakeries, they import uh, the hard wheat from Nebraska in order to mix with our soft red. So I think barley's running kind of that same track. Um, we have a lot of products that we didn't used to have. And like I said, the, the fields are maturing much more consistently than they ever used to. And a lot of that's just because farming mechanisms have changed. It's become, well, more mechanized <laughs> to say, but we just have a lot more things that are disposable that we, we never used to have. And I just wanted to mention too, on the point of the carbon sequestration um, benefit and just general soil health benefit, um, a big difference between that spring and winter barley is not just the above ground biomass, but it's the roots and the living roots in the soil, um, which is a big difference um, than, you know, a spring crop. And so having those roots in the soil, which is going to just feed that microbial activity and improve soil health and thus um, improve that carbon sequestration potential, I think is another big benefit, especially as we look to farmers like Trey, who's trying to enter the um, just the carbon opportunities and, and what kind of financial or revenue opportunities exist there. And I think you're going to see much more benefit from a winter crop than a spring crop um, from that perspective. Nicholas said that the, um, you know, it's, 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 it's moving west. Um, Ashley said that all the folks she's talking to, there's excitement and essentially, you know, most of the growing regions. I wanted to ask sort of, um, you know, which regions growers seem to be the most excited about winter barley? Have we observed any other sort of geographic shifts in regards to that? And then I want to tie that into the winter hardiness question because back on episode 228, I asked the Saskatchewan growers about winter varieties and they said, hey, look, it's just too cold here, you know. So talk about um, that challenge of winter hardiness and, um, you know, for which growing regions that matters. I can I can start. Um, you know, being located out in Colorado, you know, one of Proximity's plants is in the San Luis Valley, and in the winter, I can tell you, in in this valley, uh, it is far too cold. I mean, there will have to be significant improvements, but you're seeing interest in winter malting barley in Kansas, uh, New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, um, in southern Idaho. You know, people are beginning to look at it. So I would say that. Um, <clears throat> That I mean, those are areas where people are people are taking a shot with it. You know, I, I know several growers who are looking at it over three years. You know, what are the survival rates like with the current cultivars that are available? But again, I think it goes back to the point that if they can grow winter malting barley, that would be a strong preference to growing spring. Yeah, and I think. And I think that, oh. No, please go. Okay, I was just going to mention that, um, so AMBA has a publication that was put out, uh, just American Barley Production, and it was uh, written by John C. Weaver, um, and this was a publication that was updated periodically, but um, I actually have one of the texts in front of me right now, uh, 
published in 1950. And there is a map in there that's just always been striking to me because it actually outlines the barley growing regions and has these nice bars of showing where is the humid northeastern spring barley region, where is the humid southeastern winter barley region. Um, and then, of course, you know, it has some lines for out west as well. But that map has always struck me as interesting because that was 1950, right? That's what we knew to be. And I would say that even predominantly now, we have stuck with those same regions. But we all know that the climate is not the same as it was in 1950. Mm -hmm. And so... I first saw this map probably about five or six years ago when I was still at Michigan State. And I remember it was the director of the Michigan Brewers Guild, Scott Graham, who's like, Ashley, look at this book. Isn't this fascinating? He's like, just think this line could be creeping north. And and of course, it didn't include Michigan at all, right? So it wasn't even in consideration back in 1950. And here we are growing it, both through... I believe the change in climate, but also the ability to start breeding in that winter hardiness into these varieties and making improved varieties that are going to do well in those regions. And so I think you look at regions like New York, which was also not mapped as a winter barley growing area, um, potentially even places in Minnesota and Wisconsin. I mean, I just think that there's a lot a lot of changes on the horizon, um, of course, improvements in our breeding program, but also with the climate, you know, are we going to see this map it would be fascinating to, to essentially redraw this map now of where that production is and how it's shifting, um, because I think that that is something we need to be keeping in mind. And so when Zach says there's places that are just too darn cold, I would also agree that Duluth, Minnesota is not going to be growing winter barley anytime soon. But um, I think we've got these fringe regions where it's possible. It's possible. It's just, you know, it's it's going to take improvements. And, you know, unfortunately, it's probably going to take, you know, uh, some inevitable changes in our climate that are probably on the horizon. Nicholas, how hard are you working on winter hardiness and what, you know, what can you do there? And is that a big focus for you? Yeah, it, it is a focus for us. Um, one of our challenges is that we don't always get the winters that are necessary to do this. Um, but this year, we've gotten some nice cold temperatures here in Virginia, and we actually have a project where we're imaging these things with um, uh, cameras from, you know, on drones, and then we're using that to quantify winter kill. And so we, and you know, and we see genetic differences out there. So part of, part of this, you know, part of one of the things that we want to do is establish, okay, this is kind of what the variability is out here, you know, in, in our breeding materials, here's, you know, here's progress that can be made. And yeah, so we, we do, we do select on winter hardiness. Um, oftentimes what's, what happens is that, you know, especially in years where we have successive years of not having cold enough winters to, to make those selections. Um, we have collaborators, you know, up, up further north and, and they can, they can provide us feedback on, on some of those traits. And so, you know, when, when we have these kind of late stage materials, we can, we can make queries about whether or not they're going to be acceptable further north based on how they perform. Nicholas, are there any, are there any genetic markers currently available um, that, that are related to winter hardiness or cold tolerance? Uh, the answer is almost certainly yes. I don't, I'm not particularly familiar with um, what those would, what those are. They're, they're, they're usually, winter hardiness is usually governed by a couple of few large 
effect genes, and then a whole bunch of little, uh, you know, a whole bunch of little loci that had just, you know, kind of contribute very small amounts. So I think that even in places where you don't already have high cold tolerance, you'll see that you'll see that there's there's room to change that. And 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 so we we actually you know one of my hopes is to is to use this experiment we're working on now as a way to try to find some of those regions that are influencing um, you know freeze you know not just freeze tolerance but but winter hardiness. All right, uh, let's shift gears here a little bit. So I gather that part of the reason winter barley hasn't made a bigger splash in some of these non-traditional growing regions is that you've got this whole chicken or egg problem with infrastructure. You need grain elevators and a malt house that isn't on the other side of the country and probably a bunch of other stuff that I don't know about. Then enters proximity malt, and now you see that supply chain taking shape in, in the mid-Atlantic. Talk about all of that and sort of where we are now on that continuum and what work still lies ahead for winter barley to reach its maximum potential. Yeah, I think that that <clears throat> I think one of the key roles that that proximity has played in the Mid Atlantic is they're they're large enough that they can actually introduce a new variety. And you know, one of the things that Trey mentioned is you know, sure, growers would love to to grow winter malting barley, but what is the market like? So there's an economic component to that decision in terms of whether or not a grower is going to take a chance on an you know on winter barley or maybe just take a chance on a new variety that comes out. So I would say, you know, having the end user there in that area has, has allowed for varieties to get on enough acreage where you can really kind of start to give growers an opportunity to understand them and learn how to grow the varieties because, you know, a, a breeder like Nicholas, he's going to come out with, and he's going to hand all these growers the keys to his new Ferrari every few years that he's putting out into the marketplace. And then there's a lot of different growing areas that's incredibly diverse in the mid-Atlantic. So an opportunity for a grower comes in the form of, hey, we're a malting company. We would like, to, we would like you to try this new variety. Um, and then we want to learn with you on how to grow it. And then slowly it becomes introduced. And then that hopefully trickles down in terms of acreage and seed availability to the rest of a supply chain and other malting companies. My greatest concern is the storage problem. Uh, the winners, because they have more of that dormancy, they need to sit for a few months before they're ready to malt. That's not something most farmers are prepared to do. Most farmers don't have the storage capacity like that. I mean, some some may, um, but but then you you run into the issue that a lot of the malt houses don't have storage capacity either, right? So a farmer might say put in you know 30 or 40 or 50 acres give it a shot produce some very nice malt and then if he doesn't have anywhere to take it he's stuck right so so i think that um there are some projects that are going on to try to build some storage facilities um here in in, in southwestern virginia they're trying to actually convert an old coal uh transfer station uh i don't remember if it's a transfer station or an old Anyway, uh, a facility there into a storage, you know, for, for malt, but it, it, that's, that's what I really see as the big bottleneck here is farmers having, right. So when they're growing wheat, they just take it directly either to a grain elevator or to a mill and they get paid. Whereas here, the farmer either has to store it 
or the monster has to store it. Someone's got to sit on it and keep it from getting rained on, keep the mice out of it, you know, for, for three to four months before it's ready to malt. I think that's the biggest, that's the biggest challenge we have right now. It, it, that is a huge concern because you, you, can time your, you can time your acreage and your contracting to essentially line up a new crop year with the end of an old crop year. But to, you're exactly right, Nicholas. What's the dormancy going to be like coming out of the field? I think that there are, there are a lot of questions. And I would say with both winter and spring types or what are the environmental or the genetic factors that, that most heavily impact uh, dormancy. Could, could I ask a question? Could it, it, so, Zach, if we could produce a variety that didn't sprout but had a much reduced dormancy period, would that be of interest? I mean, if, if that storage time was, say, you know, a month as opposed to four months, is that something that, that the malt houses could could you know really take on? It 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 would be of massive interest. And okay. It would be of massive interest, but it, that always seems like a have your cake and eat it too type of scenario. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we see, we see that variation out in the field. I see stuff that, you know, if we accidentally blow some of the, some of the grain out the back of the combine, you know, we'll get a rain, we'll come back a week later and it's all, it's like we just planted it. Uh, so, you know, I do, we see that variability out there. The question is, how do you harness it without, you know, also introducing a big sprouting problem? Yeah, I think if the volume gets up high enough, if if enough um, breweries are demanding locally grown, uh, you know, barley, I think that a lot of the storage problems will fix itself. I think right now you're complementing wheat, but I think if the profitability were to gain, there's a lot of advantages to barley over wheat. And as you started to substitute those acres, you would take up that tank space with the barley. Um, but I think right now we're just not operating at a high enough volume to get the industry um, excited. Um, you know, I think it'll come with time. And I think that the, the locally grown to me is, is really a storyline for the brewer to know where their barley came from. And, yes. you know, you start talking about lower carbon footprinting and sustainability and regenerative agriculture and all these different things. And I think that it would be, um, you know, I just think it would be a, a, a real advantage to grow the markets pretty quickly. Nicholas, are there any varieties you're particularly excited about um, that you're working on now that, you know, um, obviously are still a ways out, but uh, anything that looks especially promising for the Mid-Atlantic? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we just released Avalon, which is a two row winter uh, that we're really excited about. Um, that's just now in production of certified seed this year. So we should have seed available to farmers to plant uh, in the, this fall, fall of 22. So it may, it may be to some extent a little limited, but we're, you know, we're really ramping up that variety now. What I'm also really excited about is the, so that's right. That's a, Avalon is a two row, um, but we're really excited. We're also really excited about some of the six rows that we have. There's this negative connotation between brewers and six row barleys, but that, I think that that's largely because they don't, they, you know, they, they say, oh, well, the, the grain isn't as plump. Well, there's, there's two head types in six row barley. There's, there's a, there's a compact barley head that's, that's for a very long time been used for feed barley. And that compact head tends to have some of those smaller kernels, but uh, some of the some of the European six rows have what we call a lax head, and it has a much longer um, 
the, the head is much longer, the seeds are more spaced out, and they, they tend to be about as plump and as large as the two rows. And so we've got several of those in our breeding pipeline right now that we're evaluating for release maybe this year. Well, not this year, but maybe, you know, in spring of 23. Uh, and so we're really excited about those as well. I think that one of our big challenges, you know, we started, we started a malt breeding program from scratch in about in 2010 and we got our first release in 2020. So it took us 10 years to do that. But now that our pipeline is up and completely populated, we're going to start having good materials come out maybe, you know, every year, every other year. The real question is, is, you know, how do we make sure that we don't, we don't flood the market with too many too many options, right? So we kind of, you know, want to make sure that we're only releasing the very, very best materials. Well, and I think too, it's so important to think about that pipeline that Nicholas works in and how um, that interfaces with AMBA. Um, There are just funding hurdles too, because barley still is predominantly a public sector crop. And so there's not this like, you know, huge private investment into barley breeding. And so Nicholas's program relies um, on AMBA, but also at a small, small scale, but also relies on, you know, federal funding um, for their program. And, and it's just, it's, it's difficult um, because barley is such a small crop in the grand scheme of things when you're looking at corn and wheat and soy. And so to, for us, I mean, we're, we're thinking about now, um, you know, what, what are our big requests to the federal government coming up in this next budget season about how we can invest in barley and what are our focus? You know, what's our focus and, and what do we want to spend dollars on? And of course, providing good barley lines is our priority, but how do we do that? You know, and how do we, you know, make sure that it's being prioritized and spend efficiently? So um, I think the, the funding piece to this too is a limiting factor that shouldn't be ignored as well because barley often just doesn't get um, the same slice of pie as the other crops. And that is going to be a detriment to the crop, uh, you know, until we can move the needle. For any of those districts out there, if you're listening to your, your master brewers chapter, your, your local district is flush with cash. Um, this is a good opportunity to put it to, to good use. Uh, we did that in District Mid-Atlantic not that many years ago. Uh, we set aside some funds uh, specifically because we wanted to not see Nicholas's program disappear. So that's something uh, that's that's worth considering. Excellent point, because there are opportunities for whether they be a brewery, a malt house, a state association or, or uh, organization, if they want to see money directed into uh, a program, whether it be a breeding or just research program, generally speaking, uh, you can run those dollars through AMBA in our grant process, and we can do that efficiently. So if there's interest out there and you really want to see that breeding program or research program program ramp up in your region, you know, we would love to have that conversation so that we can make that happen because we really appreciate that extra outside investment because then it's just, you know, it's just making our program even bigger so that we can have a bigger bang for our buck. So good point, John. A a breeding program and and what Nicholas and Wendy have done is a perfect example of, you know, that's a 10-year investment. You know, they're investing in this program with the, you know, in a breeding cycle, you know, anymore. I imagine some of the stuff Nicholas can do would 
would amaze all of us. But, you know, historically, 10 years is about that time frame, at which point you begin releasing varieties. So it's kind of like if you're aging a barrel of whiskey, you're not actually going to make money on any of that for 10 years or 12 years. And now that those varieties are, you know, Avalon is a great example, um, that's going to be in the marketplace. And that and those varieties should earn royalty revenue for Virginia Tech University. And I think something that brewers can do, maltsters can do, uh, you know, to help support that and make sure that essentially royalty or revenue is returned to the breeding program to keep new varieties coming is use certified seed. You know, and that could be as simple as a brewer saying, yes, we would like to source uh, this malt. Um, was your, can you tell me, was your malt actually, was the barley produced from certified seed? Because yes. that certified seed sale at the farm level returns revenue to the breeding organization who put 10 years and, and honestly millions of dollars into the development of these lines. Yeah, I mean, because maybe you can tell all the the people in um, uh, giving at, at Virginia Tech to leave me alone, since um, I'm out there trying to funnel funds to their uh, <laughs> to their program. So this guy's having a bigger impact than you realize. Leave him alone, okay? <laughs> yeah, okay, I will. I'll send the Go message hokey. along. Well, hey, listen, um, I want I want to say a couple of things on that. Uh, I couldn't agree with Zach more about buying certified seed. And there's two real benefits to that. One, you're supporting a a seed system, right? That will continue to provide products that, that can, you know, beat these new challenges that we're running into. Okay. Be they disease, be they heat, be they, uh, you know, lack of water. Okay. So there's that part of it, but there's also the part that, um, you have, when you buy certified seed, you're getting a very high quality seed product. There's no contamination. There's, well, extremely, you know, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing that is 100% pure that doesn't exist, but you're getting as pure as seed gets and you're going to have a better quality product because the seed is going to be um, produced, inspected, approved. It's going to make a better quality product for the farmer than, than brown bagging, whatever. So, so we recommend it not just because we have an investment in it, 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 you know, in getting royalties back, which don't get me wrong. It's nice to get royalties back, but the amount of acreage in, in barley doesn't, is not going to fund a barley program. We, we largely use our, our wheat I mean, frankly, my wheat program subsidizes my barley program and we do the barley because we like it. We love, you know, interacting with the community. And we've we have just so much appreciated the support that we've gotten from the 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 malt, you know, the malt barley community as a whole to to support our program. But, you know, in general, I, I just want to reiterate that that certified seed is really how the farmer can, you know, vote with their wallet and and give give back to that system and, and get a better quality product, frankly. We need to hear, and when I say we, I want to say AMBA and the breeders that we support, we need to hear what you want, right? So, uh, and the best way to do that is become involved in the process. And I don't want to turn this into be a recruitment strategy for brewers to become members of AMBA, but just know that when brewers and maltsters are engaged in the process then when they see a variety like Avalon and they're like we want more of that because we know that this this breeding pipeline is in our backyard or we know that you know this breeder is working on this and we really want some of that if you want that to come into a pipeline that's you know relatively well supported to get 
analyze and test it and make sure that it's going to meet the muster. It's, it's really important for brewers to be vocalizing that because it's one thing to be able to sit back and just, you know, get your, your malt catalog and, you know, complain about what's not available. But if you can, you know, vocalize what's important to you and make sure that's being conveyed and become part of the process, then it really does help our breeders, you know, because when they've got such a big lag time between an idea and a finished product, a finished variety to be putting out, it's really important that we're hitting the target earlier (laughs) and that we're not just trying to stumble along. And I mean, granted, our breeders are great at doing what they're doing. And we are so fortunate to have the network of people we have because this is a small acreage crap. But um, I think that brewer engagement is really important and cannot be overemphasized. That was Ashley McFarlane, Nicholas San Antonio, Trey Hill, and Zach Gaines here on the Master Brewers podcast. Support these folks if you can. They do important work. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Yeah.